The scripture reading this morning is taken from the book of Genesis, chapter 18, beginning in verse 1. And the Lord appeared to Abram by the, Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the door of his tent in the heat of the day. He lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing in front of him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them bowed himself to the earth and said, O Lord, if I have found favor in your sight, do not pass by your servant, but let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree while I bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh yourselves. And after that, you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham went quickly into the tent to Sarah and said, Quick, quick, three seahs of of fine flour. Knead it and make cakes. And Abraham ran to the herd and he took a calf tender and good and gave it to a young man who prepared it quickly. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that had been prepared and set it before them. And he stood by them under the tree while they ate. Let's skip ahead to verse 16. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down towards Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. The Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham what I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him? For I have chosen Abraham that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. Then the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went towards Sodom, but Abraham still stood before the Lord Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you sweep away the place um, and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it uh, from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. Again, he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40, I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. He said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Uh, Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. 
Then he said, oh, let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again but this once. Suppose ten are found there. He answered, for the sake of ten, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way when he had finished speaking to Abraham, and Abraham returned to his place. But before God actually walked off, and before Abraham actually returned to his place, Abraham said, Oh Lord, uh, let me speak with you a couple more times. Do not be angry with me, but suppose that five are, are in the city, are found there. Will you spare the city for the sake of five? And the Lord replied, For the sake of five, I will not destroy it. Then Abraham said, Again, O Lord, I who am but dust and ashes, that I have undertaken to speak to the Lord boldly, do not be angry with your servant, but will you spare the city if three are found there? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it for three. If two are found there, for the sake of two, I will not destroy. If one is found there, and like that's how the story ought to go, right? Like as you're working your way through the narrative, you feel the progression of the story. You, 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 it's a, it's like, it's, it's like a, a book missing its last chapter, or a symphony that's it's moving, uh, um, missing its final movement. Like reading through the narr- narrative, you get the sense that. This is how the story should end. And instead, the way it ends is Abraham walks back to his tent, you know, apparently satisfied that he was able to barter God down to, down to 10, which was a, a pretty sub- substantial improvement. But what I think the Bible is trying to tell us here is, is that Abraham is a good priest, but he's a priest who cannot save the city. And, uh, he, He's a, he's a darn good priest, but, but he's not a great priest. We're going to explore what that means. <clears throat> we could break up in discussion groups right now, and there is a question that we could ask uh, that is sort of the quintessential icebreaker question. Um, so good is this question that some of us would after a few minutes, be laughing, and some of us would be crying, and some of us, some of us who don't feel like we have anything at all to say in public would find ourselves speaking rather freely. It's a great question. I heard it from another pastor this week, and it's, describe for me the firsts of your life. The firsts of your life. First time you ever rode a bike. Um, I was in Augusta, Georgia, the first time I ever rode a bike. And I think the way the story went was another boy on the street had himself just gotten a bike. And so I, was, I walked into the house and, and said, Mom and Dad, this is not fair. You, Johnny's got a bike, and I don't have a bike, and I'm five. I deserve a bike. And somehow or another, my parents bought into that line of thinking. And so we went to the store, and all I remember of the bike was that it had blue handlebars. But it was my first bike. You remember that, don't you? Uh, you? You remember your first kiss. Surely you remember who you kissed. <laughs> but do you remember what you were wearing 
or what he or she was wearing when you kissed or where, you, where, uh, where it was that you kissed. What did that kiss feel like? Your first day in high school. So my 20th 20-year reunion is coming up in the course of a couple of weeks, and a bunch of my classmates have decided to post this montage of pictures on Facebook of everything from elementary school up through high school. And it's been a very strange week of nostalgia for me. One of the pictures that was uploaded is, is of me standing next to a guy that I haven't seen for 20 years, Kurt. And we're standing together behind what seems to be a campaign poster. Kind of hard to make it out. It says, Brad and Kurt, and I'm assuming it was like, Brad and Kurt, rock the vote. Because <laughs> yeah. we were running jointly together for president of the uh, high school choir. So we were going to be a co-presidency, me and Kurt. And the reason we chose to do it this way is because Kurt was the, the really funny and gregarious guy, and, and I was the, the pretty studious and dependable guy. And so it was a perfect combination. And given the rigors of the position of, of, of choir presidency, you, know, you needed two, two guys in that, in that role. Haven't seen Kurt for 20 years. Discovered that, uh, that he died three, like three months ago. And it's the firsts. You get people talking about that, and they'll be crying, or they will be laughing. They'll be doing something. Because each of those firsts, and the memories, the memories associated with those firsts, they, 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 last, um, uh, they, they last for the duration of our lives. Well, Genesis 18 is the first instance of somebody acting like a priest in all of the Bible. And it, it actually, ha- we have here recorded the very first intercessory prayer of the Bible. And one of the things we learn in this passage is that, that God likes priests. He, did you notice how he invites Abraham into this priestly capacity to be the priestly representative of the city of Sodom? And he says it in that rhetorical question, Shall I disclose to Abraham what I am about to do? Of course you're going to disclose it, because you wouldn't have asked the question in the first place. So that is his way of inviting Abraham into the priestly activity. Um, and God, Abraham, I want you to be the priest of Sodom. Did you know that there was a priest of Sodom? <laughs> Probably the most f- familiar city in the Bible beside maybe, obviously, Jerusalem, maybe Jericho. But even if you are um, somebody who doesn't know much about the Bible, you're not religious, you've heard of Sodom and Gomorrah. I mean, it's the paragon of evil as, as we imagine it to be. You say, well, why did God judge the, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah? The, the conservative Christian answer is that he, he judged it because of the sin of homosexuality. You know, he, he burned them because they were gay. The liberal Christian answer is that he judged them for the sin of inhospitality. When those two angels walk into the city, nobody will take them into their homes at night, and they're nearly raped, gang-raped in the, in the city square. But that's not it either. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 49 He's, the prophet Ezekiel tells us why Sodom and Gomorrah were judged. It says, we read, quote, that they were arrogant, overfed, 
and unconcerned for the poor and the needy. In other words, they were oppressive to the, to the poor and the needy, which sounds like a whole lot of people that, that, uh, that we know. Um, Abraham, I want you to be priestly representative for, for sexually deviant, inhospitable, arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned for the poor kinds of people. And so we get this scene at the beginning, what is it, verse 16, if you want to uh, look there. No, verse, the one I want is verse 22, 22. Abraham and the Lord are standing side by side, looking down the road as the two angels are walking there. And Abraham still stood before the Lord, verse 23. Then Abraham drew near and said, Abraham drew near. Isn't that a bit of a redundancy? I thought they, we just said they were standing side by side. Oh, oh, that's what's happening. It's a, it's the priestly drawing near. He, he draws near as, as a priest. And he says, well, what if there's 50? Will you save the city for 50? And what ensues is almost something that's a little comical, isn't it? If it weren't so, I don't know, callous. Here it is, we're bartering back and forth. It sounds like two Middle Eastern men haggling in the marketplace over what a piece of bread ought to cost. Uh, do I hear 50? Give me 45. You have to 45? Give me 40. I mean, but we're doing this over the lives of, of tons of people. It sounds, it just sounds so strange. What is, what is going on here? Well, in order to understand it, you have to understand a simple biblical concept that, that things happen representatively in the Bible. Much, many bad things happen representatively. So you go back to Adam. Adam sins in the garden. And who does that affect? Not only Adam and Eve, but I mean all their past posterity. Like Adam's negative record gets kind of imputed to this, this large group of people. Whether or not you think that's, that's fair, um, I, won't, I won't go into that question. But it happens a lot. You have the, is it Ham? who is the son of Noah, who is the father of Canaan, who, who completely dishonors his father. And that negative record on him passes down to his son Canaan and, and to, to the generations afterwards. So bad things happen representatively in the Bible. What Abraham wants to discover is, can it work in reverse? Can a positive record work to cover up. Um, and so that's what, that's what he's doing. He says, here's the first intercessory prayer. God, I know how much you love righteousness. You are the God of righteousness and justice. You're the God who does all things right. Can, can somebody else's positive record ripple out and cover the record of others? Um, how, do you value righteousness enough that the righteousness of the 50 could cover the unrighteousness of the 5,000. I know that you say that you love righteousness, but do, but do you value the righteousness of the 45 enough? Can the, can the righteousness of the, the few cover the unrighteousness of the many? And that's what happens step by step. And step by step, God says, 
Yes, actually, yes. I love righteousness that much. And every time God says yes, Abraham's, like, Abraham won't take yes for an answer. <laughs> He's like, no, I want more. No, not, well, what about 40? The, the, the steps go like 50 to 45, 45 to 40. And then he gets even more bold. He goes from 40 to 30, 30 to 20. He, he jumps by, by tens. Uh, no, I want more. What about 20? Abraham is the priest who won't take yes for an answer. He's the bulldog of a priest. He's hounding God. He's so bold. He's an incredible priest. You look at this and you say, this is the kind of priest that, that sodomites need. Almost. <laughs> A number of us are big Malcolm Gladwell fans, best-selling author, author of several familial, familiar titles, including Blink, if you've read that one, Outliers, I loved Outliers. Tipping Point, his latest, I haven't read his latest, is David and Goliath, Underdogs, Misfits, and the Art of Battling Giants. It's a very catchy title. Well, Malcolm Gladwell was in New York City last week, and he gave a, a, a talk at a business convention, and the topic was Steve Jobs. What is the genius of Apple founder Steve Jobs? What, what set Jobs apart from everybody else? Was it his 10,000 hours? So Gladwell and his research has determined that it takes approximately 10,000 hours for a person to become world-class in something. 10,000 hours of practice to be an Olympic gymnast. 10,000 hours to be, to be able to play the piano concerto in, in, um, in a world-class hall. Was it his 10,000 hours? He's, no, that's not it. He tells the story. Back in the 1960s, do you know who was the, the IT giant of the 1960s? It happened to be the Xerox Corporation, and they ran a think tank, a research think tank in Palo Alto. The Palo Alto, something like the Palo Alto Research Group, who ended up inventing the word processor, if you can remember what that was, uh, but also invented many of the components of the personal computer and and. And they actually invented much of the internet. Xerox was on top of the world. In 1979, they invite this 24-year-old IT company startup guy, Steve Jobs, from Cupertino, to come in and visit the research group and just take a tour of the facility. And he's in there, and he's like, what is that? Oh, it's a mouse. Yeah, it's, you, you move it around and you're able to click on a graphical interface. We've been working on it for, for 10 years, and this is going to transform personal computing. Jobs is like, yes, it is. Um, and he's just he's brimming with excitement. Um, so he jumps in his car. He goes back to his place in Cupertino, and he looks at his engineers, and he says, I've, I've seen the most incredible thing ever before. It's this graphic user interface. Can you guys do this? And they said, no, not really. And he said, drop everything that you are working on right now, every project you are working on, because we are going to get this. Then he 
jumps in his car again, and he drives across the city and meets with an industrial engineer. And he says, Xerox is making this thing called a, a, a mouse, and it's costing them, about, they're making it for about $300. You have to make me a mouse for $15. The industrial engineer's like, how am I going to do that? He says, do it. Uh, Jobs is, he's, Xerox is, um, glad we'll ask this question. Is Steve Jobs smarter than the people at Xerox? Obviously not, because they're the one who came up with the original technology. They invented it, he stole it. Did Steve Jobs have more resources available than the people at Xerox? Obviously not. He was a small-time startup company. What did Steve Jobs have? He has this unrelenting sense of urgency and um, with, they have an unlimited amount of time and money, and they think that genius can't be rushed. And Steve Jobs says, drop everything that you're working on. We are doing this no matter what. Now, when your daughter is in the hospital, and she needs a liver transplant, and there's going to be a very touch-and-go surgery that's going to take place in the next 10 hours, um, isn't that the kind of surgeon that you want? You want, a, you want a Steve Jobs for your surgeon, don't you? Guy who walks in and says, we stop whatever you're doing. We are going to make this work. This girl's going to live. If you have a son that's stationed in Afghanistan and they're you know, doing nighttime raids, you want a, a, a commanding officer who is a, a Steve Jobs kind of character. And it seems like Abraham is just that type of guy. Abraham has dug up one of the greatest gems in all of the Bible, that God loves righteousness so much that the righteous record of the few can cover the guilt of the many, and he is bulldogging God, and he's driving him to the the destination that he wants, and then inexplicably, he stops at 10. It's like he takes his ball, and he just goes home. Why did you stop at 10? And I've read a lot of different theories out there on explanations on why Abraham decided to to quit at that point. None of them I find terribly convincing. I think it's just that God wanted to write a passage that begged for a greater priest. Um, We've got a passage with a darn good priest, but he's not a priest that can save the city. He's a priest that either loses his nerve and goes home, or he's a priest who thinks there's not a righteous person in the city. I mean, Lot, from all that we know about him, at least up until this point in the story, he's not a terribly good customer, but he just, he walks walks home. Um, And... That is not the kind of priest that you want if your son or daughter is living in Sodom. The author of the book of Hebrews, we know, makes a big deal about the priesthood of Jesus Christ. A couple of the salient features of his priesthood, he says that Jesus didn't simply enter into the earthly tabernacle made with hands, but he he entered into the heavenly tabernacle. And by that, it's a contrast between the Old Testament priests and how the Old Testament priests would once a year walk into the the Holy of Holies, 
beautifully symbolic action. He would have engraved on his breastplate, I think, the names of the 12 tribes of Israel and the, the gemstones, each one of them was representing. I mean, the priest would walk in. He would draw near into the presence of God, literally with the people covering his heart. He would take the, the blood of the sacrifice and sprinkle it on the atonement cover. And he would represent the people and he would make atonement for the people. And he would say, God, uh, I am in solidarity with this people. Do not count this people's sins against us. Well, the, the author of Hebrews makes the point. That's great. It's just that it's, it's not enough. It's one day out of the year. And it's just an earthly tabernacle that's been destroyed by now. Jesus, our priest, is there, and he makes this point, 24-7. Jesus is the better priest. Who, you know, Abraham is, is a good priest. He's, he's like, well, what if there's 20? What if there's, there's 10? Jesus walks in and says, I know that there's one. <laughs> Abraham, Abraham walks up into, draws near to the Lord, and then he goes home. Well, the tabernacle was Jesus' home. And again, he was there, he was there all the time. And when you discover, basically, about yourself that you're pretty hopelessly messed up and you have a heart that's wicked, you discover that Sodom and Gomorrahites are not so different than you then you discover the only thing that is different about them and you is that you have a better priest. And when you discover that, it makes you want to say, Hallelujah! It really does. I think God writes passages like this in the Bible so that we would walk away from him saying, I love Jesus. I can't believe that I get Jesus. I'm in love with this man. I think God, his, probably his primary purpose in preaching is not imparting information to you or, or giving you new things to do. It's so you'd walk away from a sermon deeply stirred about the, the wonder of Jesus. That's what I, I do admire about African-American preaching is it's like when I watch African-American preachers, there's like a joint celebration taking place when he's preaching and the congregation is listening. They're like, we're going to celebrate Jesus right now. Amen? And, and you know, that's, it's like they create that moment, that experience right there. You know, I, I wish I had the, the preaching skill to be able to do that, the way that they do that. But, but you have... You have an amazing priest. It's the only thing that separates you from them, um, the, them being Sodom and Gomorrah. And you've got to know that you have that kind of priest before you move to the last part of the sermon, which is we, we are supposed to be priests for the peoples of this earth. Revelation chapter 1, verse 6. I have made you to be a kingdom of priests. It is astounding that God would make us kings and queens and priests. Last week in, in Sunday school, I was trying to trace the, the uh, arc of, of biblical redemptive history, if I can use that language, biblical history. And so I was doing a PowerPoint presentation for the junior high, high school kids. And my last slide 
was of Peter and Lucy and Edmund sitting on their thrones in Caerparavel in their, in their regal kingliness and, and queenliness. He made you to be king priests, queen priests. Um, and uh, are you exercising that office? It's, just, it's stunning, really, because the priests and the kings of the Old Testament were your elites. They were your Abrahams, your Moseses, and your, your Aaron's. But I mean, now in the New Testament, we get this full picture that every single believer in Jesus Christ is supposed to be a priest. And one, of the, one function of that priesthood is to be a priest for Sodoms and Gomorrahs. And, um, wh- wh- however you designate them. But whoever you designate by that title, I, I suppose, suspect that there are probably people out there who you think are just desperately wicked or you're disgusted by. You look down at frustrated beyond, beyond all, um, <laughs> all thoughts by. Uh, I know that you would pray for your sons and daughters like this. You'd bulldog God for your sons and daughters like this. You're supposed to bulldog God for, for them like this. I look forward to a day when systematic, systemic injustice and violence is fully confronted and the poor and the oppressed are finally given their due. We know that day. It's a day of judgment. It will come at the return of Jesus Christ. I pray for that day. I don't have a, an ounce of hesitation praying that, that Jesus would return and rid the world of all that is, that is wrong with it. I'm ready for ISIS to be no more and Ebola to be a distant memory. I'm ready for that to happen when God puts all wrongs to, to right. But the fact of the matter is that God didn't have to tell Abraham anything. Abraham could have woken up on Saturday morning to a plume, a mushroom cloud, and a plume of smoke. The reason God uh, spoke to him is because he likes priests praying for others. He sends out invitations to priests. He made his son a priest. He makes his adoptive sons and daughters priests. And what that is trying to tell you is that his desire to show mercy is more predominant than his desire to judge. That's why he meets Abraham at the at the Oaks of Mamre, he wants everybody to know that. His desire to show mercy is more predominant than his desire to judge. Uh, That's a very important piece of information to know if he's made you a king and queen priest. And I I hope that we'll we'll exercise that privilege, the the prerogative to to draw near and and to pray knowing that that's how Jesus Christ has prayed for us.